Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. The criticism of the Greens has always been they've been a post-material party. The rental issue is not a post-material issue. It's very, very material to young people who are locked out of a housing system that has stopped working, a system where a basic human need is turned into the biggest engine of wealth accumulation that we have. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent, and today I'm with Essential Media's Executive Director, Peter Lewis. It's our fortnightly essential special on the Australian Politics Podcast. The poll saw a big increase in respondents saying the country is going in the wrong direction, and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's approval has fallen to its lowest level since the 2022 election. We'll be discussing whether this was weighed down by economic indicators and parliamentary conflict after a week in which the Coalition and Greens teamed up in the Senate to delay the government's $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund until October. There's a lot to unpack. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Paul. Now, I wanted to start with the measure of whether people think the country is heading in the right or the wrong direction, because I think it really helps explain how they're feeling about the leaders and and many things in this poll. Uh, What did voters say in response to this question? Yeah, this is one of the old standards of political polling. It's to frame up a mood without tying it to a leader or a political party or a particular issue. It's just, do you think Australia is heading in the right direction or is it off on the wrong track? And for the life of the Albanese government, the right direction has been significantly higher. I'm looking at June straight after the election, 48 right track, 27 wrong track. And again, even towards Christmas when the economy was starting to experience difficulties and those interest rates were going up, it was 46, 34 There's been a big shift since we asked it six weeks ago in early May um, when it was 41.38, right direction versus wrong track. It is totally inverted. So it's 47 wrong direction, 33 right track. And that's, you know, a 10-point shift almost over the course of six weeks. Um, Is there anything else to see there? It is a really heavily partisan split now. Now, obviously, there was a sense when the election was won that a bunch of Labor voters who thought things were on the wrong track shifted to the right track and there was a jump. Um, There's still 55-25 amongst Labor voters 
um, 37-37 amongst Green voters, but Coalition voters, 61% on the wrong track and 71 of minor party independents, which is that gumbo of both One Nation and um, Teals that we probably shouldn't even be grouping together. The thing that jumped out at me is uh, so one third of voters saying we're on the right track, which is lower than even the pre-2022 election uh, polls when Scott Morrison was still in office. I, I guess it gives an indication that people aren't answering about what they think about the leaders. They're thinking more about their own personal financial situation. I w- well, it's just one of those broader mood checks. So on one level, you risk reading too much into it. Um because we don't know what that means to each individual. It's more like we're just trying to take the temperature. Um, And, yeah, there'll be some people that say, well, compared to being in the middle of the pandemic, I think we're in a much better position and we're still sort of moving on climate and other issues. We've, We've got a process that may or may not lead to Indigenous recognition. So I think there is a cohort of um, progressive voters that, you know, looking at the scope, particularly of the last decade, would say, yeah, well, it's heading in the right track. That said, there are material circumstances that are now affecting many voters. Um, I'm just having a look and seeing how that's playing out on age. You know, um, older people are much more likely to say it's the wrong track because we're grumpy. Younger people are still 41, 38, right direction. I was actually thinking it might have been the other way around, given all the noise around renting in the last um, few weeks. But there you go. Oh, so it's not 12 consecutive interest rate rises as I thought. It's cancel culture and artificial intelligence and everything's just scary and, and different. Yeah, there is that. And it's winter as well, right? I always used to have this theory that um, incumbents did better in summer because it's warmer and people just feel better about the world. So, you know, winter is the time of discontent, as the cliches say, and maybe, you know, particularly that last week of the winter sessions when it gets febrile and um, a little bit loose as well in Canberra, you know, maybe that's what people are seeing as well. Um I was saying to you offline, and I'm happy to share with listeners that we're working on probably a couple of months away, running a parallel qualitative Guardian Essential where we get to ask the whys as well. So we might be able to unpack a few more of these um, in future episodes, Paul. But at the moment, all we can do is say we're putting our finger in the wind and um, people are less optimistic about where the place is going than they were six weeks ago. Oh, I can't wait to get the wires for some some more informed uh, speculation. Um, <laughs> now, turning to the leaders' uh, approval, uh, now, just like there was a, a hit to those saying Australia was going in the right direction, there was also a hit uh, to Anthony Albanese's uh, approval rating. Uh, what did you find here? Yeah, so we asked people to rate the leaders on a scale of zero to 10, and then we cluster the positives seven to 10, the negatives are zero to three, and the neutrals four to six. In terms of positive, Albo's been as high as 47 just after Christmas. Again, summer. Um, In the middle of winter, he's down to 36, with 27 up from 24 the last time we asked this in May. The dart is basically... 34 negative, 32 positive. So he hasn't really gone down, but he's never been up. We actually also asked um, it about the Greens leader, Adam Bant, as well. And I think his is, in a way, the most interesting of all the findings because while his rating is lower 
than both the leaders. His positive rating is also about double the Green primary vote. So I don't think they'd be um, shedding tears over that one. Oh, right. Okay. So it's still a growth uh, potential for them because if everyone who had a positive view mm. of Bant voted f- for them, they'd, they'd, have, they'd be yeah. twice as... as and t- in fact, I think, and I haven't got this number in front of me, Amongst under 35s, he's more popular than Peter Oh, yeah. Dunn. No, I, I do have it in front of me. And he's... Because you wrote the story. That's right. He's more popular than Albanese. So in, in amongst the 18 to 34 group. So uh, 36% in that age group had a positive view of Bant and 35% had a positive view of Albanese. Now, the last time you polled Bant was in August uh, and Albanese was ahead 36, 31 there. So he's flipped the narrative in that 10 months from August to June. Wow. So that's interesting, isn't it? And, you know, I in my column this week, I kind of dub him Green Albo because I think on a lot of the politics he's been playing a game of locking it in and then sort of putting the policy fight down the line. I guess that's broken over the last few weeks with the, the housing issue, which I know we're going to talk about more in a minute. I also noticed uh, just when we're looking at who supports the leaders that uh, Dutton seems to have closed the gap on Albanese w- among men, uh, but still a yawning gap among, in approval amongst women between the major party leaders. Yeah, I think even his greatest fans would worry about his um, appeal to to women voters and there's been nothing going on in the last couple of weeks that's going to arrest that, is there? No, no. The uh, Liberal Senator David Van going to the crossbench, the coalition's uh, prosecution of Katie Gallagher for what she did or didn't know about the Brittany Higgins allegation. Uh, no, I can't see uh, that being a strong foundation for recovery among women voters at all. In fact, sometimes you watch these guys that I, I'm talking about the opposition now. And if your strategy is to win back the teal vote and you ra- made a playlist of everything you wouldn't do, that's kind of what they're doing, right? I, I think they just they want to uh, lay some big hits on the government on the economy by helping to defeat the uh, voice referendum and then hope that everything else falls into place because there hasn't been a lot of softening of their offering on social policies, to be honest, no. Uh, so turning now to you, you did ask, uh, looking at whether people support the major parties and whether they're rusted on in supporting the major parties or whether they've ever voted for the Greens or an independent or whether they were curious about that. What did you find there? Yeah, I've been thinking about, like, it is a little bit of a cliche that the two-party system's broken down, but I, and we, we we saw in our last cycle a pretty high vote for the Greens, so I was just interested in interrogating that further and also, as we said before, trying to reconcile the idea of the growth of the Teal Independence and the Greens. So we just did a little test of voters this week, which was basically giving people four options. People who usually give their preferences to the Greens or an independent candidate, um, people who have given their preferences to the Greens or an independent in the past but normally vote for one of the major parties, people that have never given their first preference to the Greens or an independent candidate but may do so in the future, and then people that are locked in to the major parties. And it's interesting. 16% say they've um, crossed the line in the past. 19% say they're dabblers. 23% are open to jumping across the, the two-party divide and just 42% are locked in or say they are locked in long-term. But then when you get to the age breakdown, 
62% of over 55s are still one of the major parties. And by that, I mean Labor or the Coalition. But amongst under 35s, it's just 21%. So 21% say they'll always vote for a major party. 21% say they already vote Green or Independent. And then you've got 27% saying that they have in the past voted for a Green or an Independent, another 31% open to it. So that's about 80% of the under 35s who say they are up for being convinced that the old binary political system is no longer for them. Um, That's got profound implications for the way that politics is run and how it's covered. One of the things I've been observing in this parliament is that large sections of the gallery are still very fixated on the flank between Labor and Liberal. And I think one of the things about what's been coming out with the showdown around housing has been that people haven't been, they've been sort of observing the left flank as a bunch of wacky characters who are now part of the rich fabric, but I don't think they've looked at it as a power axis the same way. And it's reflecting on the way it's playing out. You can see that the stapling of the rent caps, which is the push from the Greens onto the social housing investment fund, is really a play to those younger voters. And as I say in my column this week, I think the Greens are trying to position Labor almost as the grumpy parent who's imposing a fiscal curfew on the kids. Um, I don't think the Greens will be too worried that they're standing in the way of Labor landing policy when you look at these numbers. I think the challenge for Labor is to demonstrate progress on these issues that really do affect. The other thing, Paul, is that the criticism of the Greens has always been they've been a post-material party. So their appeal is to people who have the financial independence, the education, not to be voting on their own economic self-interest. The rental issue is not a post-material issue. It's very, very Mm. material to young people who are locked out of a housing system that has stopped working, a system where a basic human need is turned into the biggest engine of wealth accumulation that we have. So I think it's fertile ground for the Greens. You can see how angry the government is getting because, you know, I think, again, as we've said in the past, the closer you get to the centre of politics, the harder the battle is between Labor and the Greens. From outside, they just look like vaguely aligned political parties. But when people have fought for their political life against each other, there's a different dynamic at play. But ultimately, on these issues, the opportunity for Labor is to build a long-term consensus that can accommodate what the Greens are trying to do, maintain a progressive base, and um, ideally stop the Greens from building the coalition with the coalition as often as possible. Yeah, so I think Labor's tried to counter the Greens by trying to make people angry at them that they are standing in the way of progress, uh, voting with the coalition. You know, you should never be voting alongside the Tories if you're the Greens, uh, according to Labor. Yeah, I, I think the Greens can point to wins on that housing issue, like the $2 billion extra for social and affordable housing. And they're obviously relishing a few more months to be fighting for renters for rent caps. And it's interesting also that this isn't 
I don't think it's the first uh, sort of opportunity like this where the Greens have outflanked them on the left because Labor has left them a lot of room. Look at the uh, help debt indexation going up 7%. That was something that the Greens got a lot of political mileage out of and Labor didn't revisit that system of indexation even at a time of record inflation. So there are little opportunities there that the minor party is grabbing. There's big opportunities coming up too, none the least being that the stage three tax cuts that both the Greens and the Teals are calling on Labor to revisit. Um, You know, some of those compromises which Labor made in order to win power because they didn't want to have the fight on tax, particularly the decision not to look at the tax concessions for property investors around negative gearing and family trusts and capital gains, creates a huge opportunity for the Greens to differentiate. And again, it speaks to the way the housing system is operating in a generationally inequitable way. So, you know, when I was thinking through the way that new movements emerge and split, I couldn't help thinking about the way One Nation came as a reaction to Hawke and Keating's um, economic deregulation back in the mid-90s. And you know, what happened was that the the pushback of deregulation was a whole bunch of working class voters were originally attracted to Hanson's nativism, but then what Howard did was bring them across via Hanson into the Liberal fold and created the Howard Battler who loved the um, direct handouts and responded to the dog whistles on, on border. So there was this shift of a cohort from the left to the right via a centre party. Now, I don't think these Green voters are going to end up as Liberal voters, but there is a potential for Labor if they play this right, building the broad consensus that some of the Teal voters who have left the Liberal Party end up in that broader progressive alliance. Not necessarily giving their first vote to Labor, but definitely preferencing them. You know, if you do take the theory that this is a fragmenting political system, then you start wondering whether the most important thing to look at is primary vote or two-party preferred vote. And I think building that coalition of preferences on the Labor side is probably their best path to long-term government. The alternatives is... Well, yeah, they've just got majority government off a primary vote of 33%, which is unheard of, so... Well, indeed, but because, again, if history repeats itself, the Greens had their big boost in 2010 off the back of the Rudd-Gillard government um, promising big but failing to deliver first on climate and then on the mining tax. And I remember the campaign in 2010 under the title This Time I'm Voting Green wasn't an attempt to get people to go and vote green forever but just to lodge a vote. And a lot of those votes have stayed since. So if we just got to make sure when we look at polling numbers and the way politics plays out where we're looking at the game as it is. It's no longer a two-party game. It's this rich matrix and we've just... Whether Labor has a scenario where it can fight on two flanks or it's better to consolidate its progressive flank and just crush um, the coalition on the right is probably something that will be thought through over the next 18 months. But you look at these numbers and you say there are a lot more votes up for grabs on the progressive flank than on the right-wing flank. 
And uh, looking at the question about what people thought about majority or minority government, they were pretty much split 50-50 in terms of whether they bought the argument that it's better for majority government so the government can get its policies through or minority government so that there are more sort of checks and balances. Mm -hmm. People didn't seem very scared of of, uh, minority government at all. Yeah, again, the age breakdown is significant here. So it's 51-49 in favour of a major party with the balance of power. If you're over 55, that's 57-43. If you are under 35, it's 56-44 for a minor party or an independent with the balance of power. So again, you know, if you look at politics in generational waves, unless you subscribe to the old trope that people become more conservative as they get older, which I don't think the numbers actually bear out, then you've got to say that um, we've got to get used to more minority Mm. governments. Now, we speculated in that chat that rentals was one of the things that might be helping the Greens in the fight against Labor, and there's some support for that in the poll. Uh, It found 68% said the Albanese government was not doing enough to ensure affordable and secure rentals. Um, Is there any more information you can give about who was more likely to agree with that or is it across the board? Yeah, it's pretty much across the board. So not doing enough on rentals. It's actually more older voters who are probably looking at their kids' experience at 73%, younger voters at 61%. But What was interesting, so we lined up a series of environmental issues and a series of economic issues, and on all of them we were asking, so do you think the government's getting it about right, not doing enough, doing too much? There were very few in any of the categories that thought the government's doing too much, but it was much more the economic issues, relieving cost of living pressures, ensuring a fair income tax system for all Australians and affordable and secure rentals where the not doing enough outweighed the kind of doing enough, whereas on the environmental issues, with a couple of exceptions, people are evenly split about whether they're getting it about right. It was pretty close on climate. It was lime ball on renewables. It was actually much more 47% saying they're getting it right compared to 34, not enough on um, the development of EVs. So a lot of that sort of practical implementation of the climate agenda is landing pretty well and probably reinforcing the Greens' decision to not stand in the way of that. It was more on the the nature conservation issues, endangered species, rivers and native forests, where the number who thought that the government wasn't doing enough was outweighing those who thought it was doing enough. So, But significantly, uh, only single-digit differences between more action and doing enough on the environmental issues, but a huge gap in the not doing enough on affordable and secure rentals, 68% mm. uh, not enough, to 25% saying it was doing enough. So, And a special shout-out to the 6% who think they're doing too much on that front. <laughs> not a popular opinion. You'll, you'll be... I always... I always love the outliers. You'll be booted from your overcrowded share house uh, with that sort of controversial opinion. <laughs> um, and you, you also did a question off the back of that uh, week of debate about treatment of inappropriate workplace conduct in Parliament and found that people have a pretty poor opinion of the safety of Parliament. What, what, what did you get there? Yeah, um, we ran a trust rating, which is really a four-point spectrum from a lot of trust to no trust at all. So in order of parts of society where people trust organisations to be doing the right thing, 
and providing a safe place of work for women. Um, the public sector, it's 49 a lot or some and 45 little or no. Now, that's the most positive we get on all of them. Down the bottom of the um, the charts is the entertainment industry at 36, 58 in the negative and then federal parliament at 38 positive, 55 negative, which is worse than sporting clubs, which I think, you know, sporting clubs in particular, I think have done a lot of work and are really sort of changing the way a lot of those sports like the NRL, like the AFL, cricket are seen as um, being male bastions to being ones that are much more inclusive of women. Um, private companies, 47, 47 mm. line ball. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the MPs with corporate experience, uh, Julia Banks used to say it a lot that, you know, it's just sort of shocking that the HR processes of Australian Parliament are, are lagging far, far behind corporate Australia. So hopefully uh, when the processes for handling complaints improve and there's actually strong investigations and somewhere to go with a complaint that hopefully the standards in this place improve. Indeed. Um, All right, Peter. So looking forward, do you know what you're going to be asking uh, in the next poll? Um, look, we have been doing a lot of work, as you know, trying to understand where the nation is up to on voice to parliament. Our poll has been sitting a bit outside a number of the other polls. We've been doing a lot of work looking at the way questions are being designed. So we're actually putting together next week, especially for you and your listeners, a double sample where we're going to not just look at the bog standard question that is going out at the moment, which is a very technical and legal question in all the polls, including ours, which arguably is just confusing people before they even choose yes and no, and a few other ways which decisions are going to be made during this process. So again, you know, good polling is not about providing answers. It's about giving people fresh ways of looking at questions. So we're going to put a bit of effort into trying to give a handle on what is actually going on with this really consequential debate and seeing how we can use our research to think about how we give this a proper run and not just run straight to, you know, a constitutional debate, which on one level it is, but it's so much more than that. Hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, a fresh look at that issue and also when we get the magic wires, uh, as well as the, the numbers coming through in future polls. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Peter. Pleasure as always, Paul. This episode was produced by Mel Chun and Alison Chan. Our executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thank you for listening. We'll have another episode of Australian Politics on Saturday. Hey, Jane Lee here. I'm one of the hosts of Full Story. And I want to tell you about a way you can catch up on some of The Guardian's award-winning journalism. It's in print and it gets delivered to your door no matter where you are in Australia. The Guardian Weekly magazine is our global news magazine, which features in-depth articles, including pics from Guardian Australia's editors. It comes out once a week and it can help you make sense of a busy news cycle. You can currently sign up and buy your first 12 issues for $12. That's just a dollar an issue. But this offer won't be around forever, so go and subscribe today at theguardian.com forward slash weekly Australia. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.